Hey everyone, welcome back to That Shit Is Poison. This is episode 25. My goodness, that is why that's wild to even say. You're listening to your true crime and toxicology podcast. Your host, Harini Bot. And your other co-host, Megan Gesner. Whoop whoop. We are back another week, (laughs) another day. (laughs) So today is May 4th, you know. Star Wars fans, may the fourth be with you. Yes, we'll say that punny joke. But tomorrow is more important to me. It is Cinco de Mayo. Megan, are you doing anything for Cinco de Mayo? I don't have any plans. Um, But I do kind of want to go and check out what's happening in the community. Yes. So, like, I don't have set plans. Mm -hmm. But I'll probably be out and about at some point. Yeah. um, Evening time. Okay, you guys. So, (laughs) this is what I love about where Megan is right now, where she lives. I've been hanging out with her a lot more now that I'm back in San Diego. And just like footsteps outside of her door are so many different little eateries and bars and like fun little things to look at and do. So I totally get it. Like you don't have to have plans. You can just walk outside at any given time and be like, what's what's going on out here? What's going on out in the world? I love it too. I feel like I'm very spoiled, but I'm just going to keep milking it yeah. until... I no longer live here anymore, whenever that is. (laughs) whenever that is. Yeah, enjoy it while you can, exactly. So Dave's birthday is later this month, but his friends wanted to basically lump some birthdays together. So we were supposed to do something for his birthday and another friend's birthday tomorrow and get just like Mexican food, maybe like an old town, something like that. But then Dave had like an emergency tooth extraction yesterday, so he can neither eat nor drink for like the next three days. So he was like, I don't know if I want to go and just sit there. (laughs) Oh, poor thing. Oh, that's so unfortunate. It's so unfortunate. (laughs) But we're still going to (laughs) go. I I figure the friend group is probably like itching to get out. I know. I know. They're like, can you just come and just sit there and just hang out? I'm like, I guess. (laughs) Hey, they need him for additional excuse. Exactly. Birthday stuff. But for Cinco de Mayo and other mm-hmm. people's birthdays, because it's like a joint thing. Is that yeah, right? that it is a joint yeah. birthday thing. So we're just going to go show our faces, enjoy some friend time and just I'll drink all the drinks for the both of us, <laughs> which I'm not <laughs> complaining about. Yeah. <laughs> well, if y'all end up rolling through Ocean Beach for mm-hmm. whatever reason, because mm-hmm. that is very close to Old Town. That is true. You let me know. I shall. I shall. <laughs> We should just get get into into it. it. Let's do it. I'm actually, so full disclosure, Megan had told me the topic of her story today and I'm very excited. So I'm so excited that you're excited. I hope I can bring that excitement all the way through. I I have full confidence that she will. So let's get into it, Megan. Megan, it is your week. So it's time for you to pick your poison. All right, folks, poison pals. Sit your ass down if you're not a person. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love it. Uh, I'm just trying to get y'all get y'all ready mm-hmm. and riled up, but also seated because this story is about to take off. Oh yeah. Okay. So I will be talking about a individual named George Chapman, and we are going to be going back. Back, 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 back. back, back. <laughs> That was so perfectly synchronized. And we both did the head. We both moved our head from side to side while we said it. It was perfect. We'll be going back to 19th century Victorian era 
London. Yes. That is Victorian era, yeah, yeah. era right? Mm-hmm. 19th century mm-hmm. Victorian era. Okay. Mm-hmm. So late 19th century London. And I know this is up Harini's alley. Yes. Like uh, all that Sherlock-ish. Mm-hmm. Although I don't know when Sherlock happened. Probably you're on that time. Same, yeah. Supposed to be around the same time. <clears throat> Jack the Ripper yes. style type of story ooh, today. Ooh. In fact, there will be a little bit of Jack the Ripper <gasps> stuff that pops up. Oh. So everyone, grab your little teacups <laughs> and your top hats. Yes. And your 19th century matchsticks that the matchstick woman's made for you. Correct. And grab some sort of, I don't know. Vermouth? Disease. Oh. <laughs> disease. <laughs> because. Grab some because, typhoid um, on your way out. Or uh, any one of those old timey diseases that just runs rampant when you're in the slums of 19th century London. So basically. that's the setting. Yeah, that's that the is setting. the setting. And I'm yeah. very excited for this mm-hmm. because somehow the the gloom and drear of 19th century London is my vibe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> so I'm ready and for so, it. Um, first, I'd like to list my sources for today. So the main source that I pulled from, and I actually downloaded this, paid for this. This is like, I was really doing my research. Wow. I paid for this on my Kindle. But it's called The Elements of Murder, A History of Poison by John Emsley. And actually, Harini, I will let you yeah. borrow this whenever you want, because it definitely has some good other chapters on other poisons. And the elements of murder, it's definitely double yes. entendre because it's a, specifically about oh, elements of the periodic so table that are used. Yes. So I'll, I'll send that to you. So that's the main thing that I pulled from, and you'll hear me reference and read direct passages from it today. I also used the New Jersey Department of Health, <laughs> the CDC, the U.S. National Library of Medicine, the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health, Inchem.org, Murderpedia, and last but not least, wow. Wikipedia. Yeah, and so this individual, uh, his name, George Chapman, he was a serial poisoner slash, you know, serial killer. But I think it's so interesting because there tends to be a stereotype with this era with women as poisoners, right? Yeah. Like that's what a lot of literature depicts, you know, that's what the fiction... Uh, realm depicts of like 19th century London like the women are the poisoners and all that but this this one's a dude I mean we've covered many stories and many of them are actually true that is true (laughs) poisonings but I just thought that that was unique in terms of like because of the setting we typically put a woman in Mm -hmm. our minds but nah we've actually only had (laughs) one female poisoner so far on the pod I think which is Dorothea Puente right I mean, technically, you could say, what's her name? Um, um, Sheila? Um, tough titties. Oh, tough. Sheila's <laughs> technically a poisoner. That's true. That's true. It was all her mastermind. But she, like, made, yeah, made other Sure, sure, sure. But yes, I think you're right. Yes. Proceeding. All right. So I'm going to start with a little background, and then we'll get into the- The goodies. The meat of the ball. <laughs> so George Chapman was not born- George Chapman. Mm. That is not his real name. And that actually plays a pretty important part into like how he's able to get away with his murders for a bit. Interesting. He was born. Okay, I'm going to struggle with this name. So bear with me. He was born Suarin Antonowicz Kolowski, which is a Polish name because he was born in Poland. Mm. So he's actually Mm. a Polish individual. Wow. And he was born in a town called Nargornok, Poland on December 14th, 1865. There's not a lot about his childhood. We just mm. know he was born 
And then at some point in his young adulthood, approximately around the age of 15, he started apprenticing as what is known as a Feldscher. That's F-E-L-D-S-C-H-E-R. And a Feldscher, this is wild to me, but okay. I didn't, like I'm learning history here, right? Mm. A Feldscher is an occupation which combines both being a barber, like someone who does hairdressing, mm-hmm. and surgery. <laughs> what? Yeah. So Feldscher is someone who has the role of a barber and can do minor surgery. Like Sweeney so Todd. Interesting. Yes. Uh, in some way. Yeah. I think that kind of like falls into where he would fall into that. But apparently that was super common. And I was just like how certain medical practices were back in the day. I think of it like... um Maybe what would be a contemporary equivalent of a Feldscher mm-hmm. is like someone who does derm- dermatology, you know, like mm. think Dr. Pimple Popper. I'm like, what if that's what he was doing? <laughs> you know, Jesus. like you're you're doing the hairdressing, but then yeah. you're like, oh, you got some blemishes. Let me get you like an ointment for that. Or let's like fix this abscess on your face. You know what right. I'm saying? Right. Right. I don't know what you're who saying, knows? but right. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, I disagree. Modern so, medicine's way different now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Wait, so this Feldscher thing, is this just something that happened in Poland or, you know, all over Europe? I think it was pretty common in, in Europe because wow. what all, like, you know, later on, he does immigrate to London. That's where he ends up staying for the majority of his life. But mm. he uses his background as a Feldscher to get work at, like, um, he first starts working under like another surgeon in London, but then he starts working as like a hairdresser. Wow. And like, he actually got more work because of his apprenticeship as a Feldscher. I don't know. But yes, that's a thing. We all (laughs) learned something new. That is really fascinating. Yeah. You can get a haircut or you can (laughs) get some surgery done. I just wanted to say something really quick. So once again, I'm talking about Outlander, but it's so interesting because... They didn't really have a lot of doctors back then or like the practice of medicine was not really fully fleshed out at that time. So in one of the episodes, she one of the main characters, she works at this, you know, makeshift hospital, essentially. And there's no doctors. They just have volunteers who kind of have some knowledge of medicine and surgery and things like that. One of the volunteers that comes to help out the hospital and is a surgeon, makeshift surgeon, his daytime job is the executioner <laughs> at the at the local prison. So he's very yeah. familiar with death and like what it looks like to die and blah, blah, blah. But he also is very familiar with anatomy and the human body through his work. So he comes and helps mm-hmm. out during the day at this hospital, which I just thought was like, what? That's so yeah. that's so wild to me. But yeah, kind of interesting concept. It's so wild. Like it's it. Yeah. The concept that their understanding of medicine is obviously not like our understanding of medicine as it is today, like hyper-specialized and all that stuff. It's Mm. just like, hey, if you have some minor medical background knowledge, like totally, you could also be an executioner or you could also cut hair. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I don't know. Very weird. Anyways, all right. So for seven years, so he started his apprenticeship journey at the age of 15, which also is like extremely young, but like that's just how it was back then. Right, right. right. Um, Proud labor. So for, (laughs) yes. So for seven years between 1880 and 1887, he pursues multiple different apprenticeships so that he can gain experience for his entrance exams 
because he wants to apply for a degree of junior surgeon at the Imperial University. And he actually does get in in 1886, but he ends up dropping out almost like less than a year later in 1887. A lot of a lot of what I'm about to share with you, the only way reason we know about him, a lot of his documentation is because of his application to that medical school. That's mm. how like we know a little bit about his like early life. Yeah. And then the rest of him, we the re- like historically the reason why we know about him and like his movement throughout the world is because of purchases and checks and wow. things that he did with the bank and like yeah. small business ventures. So it's hmm. all like that's how we kind of track him throughout history. But that's anyway, really interesting. Uh, yeah, so after he dropped out, that's there's like a little gap in time where we don't know what happened with him he just kind of like disappears but it's uh, it's presumed that he met a partner and fathered a couple children and that's when he ultimately emigrates to london and why we think that that he had like a partner and kids is when he immigrates to london there was definitely a woman and two children in tow but Mm. he once he got there he was like i don't want to have nothing to do with you so they went back to poland (laughs) jesus (laughs) i want to say that the story of george chapman does have some triggering elements in terms of like domestic abuse and just blatant misogyny yeah and i laughed but like it's when i was reading it it was almost like so incredible that i was like i don't know i just it's just absurd but anyway so just a quick trigger warning there will be some mentions of domestic violence domestic abuse um because he's just a shitty misogynistic 19th century villains. There we go. There we go. Anyways, so now we can Mm. go back to where I was. Okay, so he immigrates to London and he immediately takes up work at different barbershops. He does utilize his experience as a junior surgeon to like convince barbers to hire him. And one of his first bosses, he actually helps his boss's child overcome a sickness. And that's what he kind of uses to convince him like, hey, I'm worth you hiring me like i have abilities that are like beneficial for the company or whatever so i just find that so hilarious because basically what you're telling me is he dropped out of medical school to go back Mm -hmm. to cutting hair and he's like Mm -hmm. let me prove my worth to you (laughs) yeah my my cutting skills are fabulous i love it yeah yeah it's it's an interesting because like in some ways I can sympathize with that concept of, listen, I know I have these skills, but yeah. maybe I'm just not passionate about it. Correct. I actually like the cutting the hair side of things more. But yeah. as like a person who's smart at promoting and marketing themselves, they're like, know that I have these other surgeon skills sure. in case that's something that y'all are looking for. Right. So, yeah. Very smart. So, yeah. it's he's, he's very smart and we'll see like very charming charismatic and manipulative yes um but we'll we'll get into that sure yeah so he emigrates to london around 1888 and then in the fall of that same time that's when there started to become murders in Whitechapel. oh my Um, god and this is when jack the ripper started to you know terrorize communities and was on the headlines of every newspaper but like literally around the same time he showed up uh, that's when prostitutes started getting mutilated and murdered whoa in Whitechapel and so that's why if you ever look up this individual Mm -hmm. uh, and at the time he's still known as Klazowski he's still known by his Polish name okay if you look him up 
he'll always be affiliated with Jack the Ripper only because when one of the first murders happened, mm-hmm. he where he worked was literally like a stone's throw away. Like Dude. he was in that vicinity. And one of the main investigators on the Jack the Ripper cases, um, I think his name was Inspector Aberlein. Mm-hmm. Um, he had remembered seeing Klazowski at the barber shop or something and just felt like he was a you know a suspicious dude and right. Klazowski did have a reputation already in the community for being kind of brutal towards women essentially mm. he had mm-hmm. partners who he would hit and i think his first partner i think her his her name was Lucy did report him one time like you know he he was abused toward me to the point of strangul- strang- strangulation mm-hmm. and so i think that fit inspector Aberlein's like oh that's the jack the ripper mo but ultimately, you know, he wasn't tied to the murders. And I actually do agree with that because I think what we find out what he does later on, I don't think mutilation was his MO. That's what made the Jack the Ripper cases infamous. Wow. Um, like the coincidences are so peculiar that yeah. they're like just the proximity, the timing. Right. That is so interesting. Yeah. Well, from my very limited knowledge mm-hmm. of like Jack the Ripper stories and and like yeah. the, the history behind that i know that there's always going to be a question of maybe it was multiple people mm, yeah yeah that's you true. know like it could have been multiple people at the time just right. targeting prostitutes and the more i read the story about george chapman who i'm talking about today i'm just like <sighs> men were abusing women left and right yeah completely. Uh, during this time yeah. especially in this particular area lots of poverty lots of sickness and just Mm -hmm. like lots of things going unchecked so that's why i'm like yes there's a coincidence that he's in the area but at the same time i'm like abuse was rampant yeah totally yeah anyways so that happens in the fall and he's kind of a suspect but then nothing really ties him to the cases the next year in 1889 klazowski he actually starts running his own barbershop and he starts to finally become comfortable within the community and even like frequents the Polish Polish club in St. John's Square. So like he's building community, he's yeah. finding his people. And this where this is where he meets his first documented wife, Lucy Badirski, who came from German occupied Poland. So like his first documented wife is Lucy, mm-hmm. who's also Polish. They move in together within like a month of knowing one another and they lied for a couple of months that they were married before actually officially getting mm. married in October when she became pregnant. And I would like to say that Klazowski is of the Roman Catholic faith mm-hmm. and that kind of comes into play with his relationships with women okay. later on. So just keep that in the back of your minds. That's like a big no-no in general for the time right. and for his religion to be living with the woman and not being married and they were definitely sharing a bed before being married so like that was that in the next year of may of 1890 they actually move from london and they go to the united states where he opens a shop in new jersey wow so he he has a little stint in new jersey but at this point they're fighting there's you know domestic violence and what i find so interesting about his life is that Everything's so quick. Like, it's a, in a year's time, things change. In a year's time, things change. So they move in 1890 to the U.S. By 1891, Lucy's like, 
peace. I'm out of here. She's pregnant with her second child, but she's like fleeing mm-hmm. from Klazowski because she can't, you know, it's not safe for her, for her to be with him anymore. Right. So she actually goes back to London to live with her sister. He follows her two weeks later to try to reconcile, but ultimately it's just not sustainable and they agree to part permanently, but they do not divorce. Okay. So he stays married to her, but they are separated and they sure. like have nothing to do with each other. Mm-hmm. And he... They agree that she's going to take the kids. But at the same time, like, what you'll find from his habits, he's someone who's just, like, does not want children around. Mm. <laughs> around <laughs> For does sure. Does not want the ownership of the children. Yeah. Does, yeah. No accountability. No responsibility there. for that. Got it. Right. Okay. How old is he so at this time? He's 26. Dang. He's, he's our age. He's a baby. <laughs> baby. <laughs> anyway. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Yeah, so here's another moment. So once he and Lucy separate, this is another moment of gap period where historians don't know what he's up to. Like three years pass. There's no documentation on what happened to him. He's not making purchases. There's no bank notes or whatever. And there's a chance that he may have gone back to New Jersey. But at some point, he just pops up in London again. Can't keep away. (laughs) So exactly. After these three years, you know, he's in London and he meets a hairdressing assistant named Annie Chapman. Okay. He invites Annie to become his housekeeper, which turns into them having a partnership. Mm -hmm. They never marry because he is still married to Lucy and he cannot remarry. Right. Um, And nor can he divorce because of his Roman Catholic faith. But he's still like sharing a house in right. bed with Annie Chapman. So it's kind of like, all right, like, what? I don't know. It's interesting that that, like, concept of faith has a hold on him I know. in terms of, like, not having a divorce. Yeah. Especially when later on down the line, he's poisoning people. So I'm like, what? Mm, that's religion for you. <laughs> um, just wacky. <laughs> just wacky. <laughs> so they never marry. She ends up leaving him. But then contacts him later and is like, yo, I'm pregnant. Oh, God. He wants nothing to do with that (laughs) and is like, it's not mine. Totally dismisses her. Sure. And she tries to tries to see if there's any avenues to like solicit him for support, for payment of support for the kid. But because they were never married, she has no legal ground to have him support her financially. The last time she ever sees him is he rides by her house on a bike and is like, Annie, I'm leaving this district. Peace. <laughs> and like, that's that's all that she sees of him. But what she doesn't know is that he's leaving. And the one thing he's taking with him is her last name. And that is when he turns from Suarin Klazowski to George Chapman. Yeah. Because her last name's Chapman. Right. And she just never hears from him again. And this is at the same time where he never, ever answers to the name Surin Klazowski ever again. From here on out, he is just George Chapman. So now I will only be referring to him as George Chapman. Okay. So that's early parts. Now we're going to get into the first murder. Okay, I'm ready. (laughs) Here we go. So in 1895, Chapman meets 39-year-old Mary Spink at the current barbershop that he's working at. Mary tells him, hey, at the current house that I'm rooming at or boarding at, there's another room available if you need, like, accommodations or something. He's like, oh, yeah, I am looking for lodging. 
and goes to move into that same house. Like, you know, separate rooms, but it's like a flat. Yeah. It's like you meet in the corridor sort right. of thing, right? So they start to build a relationship pretty quickly to a point where even the landlord's wife, like, sees them kissing on the stairs once. And she's like, tis tisk, like, y'all aren't married. A lot of this marriage stuff comes up because that's just how the times right. were. And because they were getting some flack from the landlord and landlord's wife, they're both single people who weren't married, but like clearly seeing each Mm -hmm. other. They decide to get married, quote unquote, married in October of 1895. That's the same year. And they actually staged their marriage just to get people off their back. So it's totally falsified. Like there's no actual marriage. But what they did, they they dressed up and everything and like left on a Sunday to make it look like they were doing something official. Wow. That's not very Catholic of them. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) I don't want to say anything, but I just think, you know, there's there's a lot of things about him yes. that are not Catholic. Exactly. He's bending the rules yeah. a bit to his convenience. <laughs> yes. he He's going to bend the rules a lot. One thing that you should know about Mary is that she actually had a pretty significant trust in the amount of 600 pounds at the time, which was quite a lot of money. So together, they decided to put some of that money towards buying and opening their own barber shop out in Hastings. They move from, you know, busy London area and go more towards the uh, vacation-y sea bluff area of Hastings on the water. I love it. (laughs) And so they buy a shop and the story goes that the shop actually is like struggling a little bit. But then George Chapman buys a piano, puts it in the shop, and then Mary starts playing it. And then, then their business is booming because like their guests are entertained. I don't know. It's very weird. So business is good now because they got this fucking piano and Mary's singing. And business is so good that Chapman even buys a small boat called the Mosquito. No. But then (laughs) just no. (laughs) They're just living life. Yeah. But then apparently like the Mosquito uh, crashes at some point, uh, like just because of natural causes. And and then he's (laughs) I'm laughing because the way it's told from my sources, like it's just like, oh, he he had a boat and then it crashed and then he was sad <laughs> and and now his life was not as fulfilled now that the boat was gone. Oh my god! And then everything like everything since the boat, just things go downhill. Oh, kind of was comical. that what put him over the edge and started poisoning all women? <laughs> He's like, I lost my mosquito. Um, to be honest, no. When I was reading it from the this is the book that I got it from elements elements of murder. It did make me laugh because I was like, what if that was the case? What if yeah. it was like because his boat crashed, like life was no longer the same. <laughs> Anyways, so things were going good. But then after this boat disappears or whatever, it turns out that Mary started picking up drinking and in a way that was unhealthy. And so she just was a heavy drinker to a point of alcoholism to a point of where she was neglectful of looking after her son, which I forgot to mention prior to them ever getting together slash getting married she already had children and one of them was with her former husband and the other one was with her so so at the time she did have a son who she just brought along with them but she because of her drinking was becoming neglectful this is around the same time that somewhere in chapman's brain the gears start to turn that she's somehow like a liability and this is where I think he starts contemplating poisoning her. This all happened 
1896, it's documented that on April 3rd of 1897, Chapman purchases an ounce of antimony potassium tartrate from one of their regulars who's a pharmacist at their barber shop and that's just like there that's just like a documentation that he purchased this tartrate and so i never mentioned (laughs) i never mentioned what poison we would be discussing but what it is it's antimony potassium tartrate also known as tartar emetic Mm. which is something used to induce vomiting and antimony itself is a metalloid Mm -hmm. so it's not like a heavy metal it's a metalloid it has metallic and non-metallic properties Uh but if it's in a certain certain compound state such as antimony potassium tartrate it's highly interesting i'll get into more of that later but the reason why he's able to purchase it from the pharmacist is because at the time this antimony potassium tartrate was something that all pharmacies had like it's something that people used on their livestock to induce vomiting in case like animals had parasites it's something that some people use to vomit if they drink too much alcohol (laughs) so so it's super accessible super accessible this is you know all starting to line up that he recognizes that mary has a drinking problem somehow he's starting to become dissatisfied in life we don't know why we just know that he purchased this toxin Mm -hmm. or this poison And then there is a presumption that he was attempting to pursue other relations with other women while still with Mary. He even started to shift interests from hairdressing to pub owning. So he went into like a different business mindset. That makes no sense. So all of, yeah, all of that to say, does this give us a good reason for why he eventually goes to poisoning? No, No, not at all. (laughs) Is there ever a good reason to go towards poisoning besides perhaps self-defense? I don't know. But ultimately, we don't know what his motive motive is. I'm more confused that he started to go to a pub because I thought he was, if anything, annoyed that she was an alcoholic. Then he goes and opens a pub. Yeah, I don't get that. Yeah, okay. Okay. Isn't that absurd? Because he recognizes she has a drinking problem, is clearly irritated with it, decides to open a pub... Which she works at and will drink at. And then he on it, like there's a one documented day where he even like kicks her out of the pub. But it's like, brother, you own a pub, which in and of itself is enabling. Personally, I just don't think he cared. I think he was a selfish yeah. person. And you'll get that more from more of the story. But when I read this first part, as I'm like learning who he is, I just don't think he cared for her. I think he was just selfish and was like, she's a problem to me. I don't really care for her child that she's been towing along with us. I'm interested in owning a pub. And if she can't control herself, that's mm, on her. Yeah. You know? I mean, yes, I and I agree with that. But in my mind, I was like, if he was a smart man, this is really dark. He goes all the way to just open a pub and it's like, just drink herself to death. Just like let it happen on its own, you know, without poisoning her. I mean, alcohol is a poison, but yes. I wouldn't knock that theory. There might be something there. I don't think so. But ultimately like, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I don't know. (laughs) I don't think so. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, But like, but I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. That that thought kind of came to my mind too. So I know I kind of skipped ahead, but they do buy a pub. He uses more of her trust money for that which you know maybe that's why he didn't want to off her too soon because like she had access to the money (laughs) i'm I'm, like jumping ahead with my speculation but anyway yeah so they move from hastings back to london where they purchase a beer house called prince of wales which is Mm. situated in bartholomew square in finsbury london 
And that's what that's like pretty much when he starts to decide to poison Mary. It's believed that he starts to poison her in mid-November of 1897. So again, he's a very quick worker. Like things yeah. happen for him like within a year's time because her starting to fall into her drinking habits and all that, that was like early 1897. Mm-hmm. And in a several months, they're like, let's move back to London. Let's open this beer pub. Right. And I'm going to start poisoning you because you're <laughs> irritating me. <laughs> so around mid-November, she starts to show symptoms of sickness most of the symptoms are vomiting and diarrhea even there there's witness accounts from the pub that say you know by december mary looked really bad and her condition whatever it was like just significantly worsened within a month's time from november to december sure two weeks two weeks before christmas some women who frequented the pub were like hey george george you know george chapman you need to get mary a doctor and the doctor that they decided to get diagnosed her with tuberculosis and prescribed medicine, of course, to no avail. One of the women who is, you know, one of the regulars, her name was Martha. She noted that George would give Mary some brandy just to, like, ease her stomach, which I think was something that was just done back in the day. Like, that wasn't right. common. I guess it was the traditional traditional treatment for upset stomach. But she noted that the bottle was labeled specifically for Mary. Like, George labeled the brandy (laughs) bottle and was like, Mary only. Like, this is her bottle only. Oh, my Um, God. But for some reason, the people who are witnesses of this perceive this as, like, a very doting response from George. And they're like, oh, there's nothing more sinister here. He's very doting. He's watching out for her. Blah, blah, blah. On Christmas morning of 1897, this is another Christmas death story. In fact... There's a lot of Christmas-related events in the story, which is also ties into a stereotype of Victorian-era storytelling. Exactly. I was what like, is Scrooge. I'm thinking of yes. Scrooge. Yes. It's always during the winter months. But yeah, Christmas morning of 1897, Mary had a particularly violent attack of vomiting, and she died at one in the afternoon. So that is the story of Mary. And no one suspects a thing right now, but you know, like... As I had said earlier, and if you should you should be able to put it all together, folks, but he was definitely putting little bits of this antimony potassium tartrate into her food and her drink and was microdosing for like a couple months. Wow. So, yeah. So now we'll get into the next chapter. The murder of Bessie Taylor. No, Taylor. Right. <laughs> no. Okay. So a few weeks. Literally a few weeks. Oh, my God. He does work fast. Damn, (laughs) girl. Like, this life moves fast for this dude. A few weeks after Mary's death, Chapman puts out an advertisement for an assistant at the Prince of Wales pub. He's like, I just lost my wife. I kicked out her kid because I didn't want him around anymore. Which is true. Like, he actually, like... He, like, let the kids stay for a while. I was like, I need the additional help. But at some point, he sends them off to some boarding school and, like, never sees them again. Like, oh a God. trade school and never sees them again. And that yeah. boy turned out to be Oliver Twist. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, a few weeks after Mary's death, he's already putting an ad- out an advertisement. He needs an assistant for the pub. He can't work it alone. The applicant he ends up choosing is 32-year-old Bessie Taylor, a woman described as independent and uniquely capable for the time because she had left her home at the age of 21 to come alone to London. So she's just like this badass woman, just like, I'm here in London and I'm working. He hires her on. 
Within the same year, they begin sharing a home oh, together. And just like with Mary, they pretend to be married. And the reason why we know this is because there is a documented uh, wedding check from her father of like 50 pounds. Damn. Um, cashed or issued in 1898. And so that's wow. why we know that they pretended to be married, at least, and were like cohabitating. A month after their marriage, they quickly decide to buy what's known as the Grapes Public House in Bishop Stortford. And they decide to move from London to the country between Hertfordshire and Essex. So he just kind of moves around. Like, it's really interesting. He sees these business ventures and opportunities, and he's like, I want to buy that, and I'm going to move there. Wow. And so they do. What a go-getter. And he still has, he actually inherits Mary's trust. So he has that leftover money after Mary dies. Yeah. So they buy this grapes house. It is not a lucrative business. Like, it fails. It flunks. And at the same time, Bessie is like, struggling with her teeth and like is developing abscesses and so that caused saucy jaw that's what i'm thinking dude (laughs) i I did think that i was like she must have been like a matchstick girl or something i don't know (laughs) around christmas time of i'm not saying that poisoning is about to happen here but around christmas time there's a friend who came and visited because she was dealing with her like teeth problems and abscesses that noted oh george chapman and bessie they don't seem like they're getting along he's definitely an angry person and he threatens her with a revolver and things like that so there's a witness to that in early 1899 you know just again another year later they decide to sell the grapes public house they move back to london and where he buys another pub called the monument and things improve a little bit like things are a little bit better Bessie was very well liked by the community. She was like a radiant individual at, at the this pub house mm-hmm. and she like always donated to charity. So she was well liked. And I think that also bolstered George's status too. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they had a lot of people who frequented the pub that just liked them. Mm-hmm. There is a point where even her parents visited and would help out at the pub. And they actually liked George Chapman too. They were like, oh, he seems like fine. And then this is where it just skips, like things were going well. And then uh, he decides to poison her. And this is the one person where I truly don't know his motive. With Mary, we could assume like, you know, she had she was drinking um, and maybe that was interfering with like his life plan yeah. in a very selfish way. He was like, I don't want to care for her. I'd rather her be dead, right? you know, which is like really fucked up. Yeah. But with Bessie... I truly don't know like his his motive for why he wanted to get rid of her. I think part of me thinks that there's this growing thing inside of him where he's like, I just want to see if I can do it again. It's believed that he begins to poison Bessie in December of 1900. So again, winter months, maybe something he maybe has seasonal depressive or <laughs> disorder. It's just a sick minded person. Right. He's like, I want to kill people when it's December. I don't know. <laughs> Um, Oh, my God. And that's like around his birthday, too. That's so morbid. Yeah. Yeah. And so two weeks before Christmas, she becomes ill and constipated. And this is when the poisonings start happening. And maybe he's just like, maybe it's like a trigger thing. Now that I'm like thinking about it, maybe it's a trigger thing. Like he's like Christmas time. Right. That's when I need to start poisoning, poisoning people. You know, that's so bizarre. I wonder if he also poisoned her for her money. Maybe she had money he could inherit. Perhaps. But that's never mentioned. You know, like we so we don't know 
but also like maybe there wasn't enough documentation about that sure sure sort of thing yeah a doctor is consulted but the medicine prescribed you know does not curb the vomiting because she's showing the same symptoms she's just vomiting yeah and diarrhea <laughs> and nothing staying down it's just constant vomit they even have like a live-in nurse attend to her through december and they have many friends come through to visit her and aid her through her illness she deteriorates through the month of january and eventually dies on february 13th of 1901 this one actually kind of sat with me as much as we don't know his motive and i know it's like a a quick description of her passing but the fact that she went from december to february of just being bedridden and vomiting and having stomach pains and growing ulcers and sometimes she'd improve because he would not poison her because maybe the the pub was busy and then she'd just decline again right like to me that one's the hardest one to think about because it was just such a long period of time where she's just like what the hell is happening and i'm just deteriorating dude that's Um, the worst like that's that is really just a hard pill to swallow because you're basically slowly dying and slowly being tortured that's the worst yeah during this time you know before her death two two different doctors were consulted one weirdly was a gynecologist but i now understand why they called a gynecologist because one aspect of their symptoms, both Mary and Bessie's, is that there was weird cervical discharge uh-huh. and there was like hemorrhaging in that area. So I think that's why a gynecologist was called. And that doctor like ultimately could not diagnose her. The other doctor that was called was just like a general physician, but they were like, oh, I think her symptoms are psychosomatic. And at the time, that's AKA that they use the term hysteria. Mm. And when I read that, I was like, you fucking suck. You suck. Like, how could it be psycho? I mean, I understand the concept of psychosomatic, but like she is literally losing weight right. and withered and she is vomiting. Right. It's physical. Exactly. She's vomiting and shitting <laughs> like constantly. And, She's living and in her like, shower. If yeah. they're, No, they don't have showers in her tub. <laughs> they don't. She is living in gross rags and is in bed. She's like she's like the old people in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, just lying in the bed. No, that's the <laughs> most depressing, depressing so, thing. So sad. Yeah, but that's that's why I'm like I read that and I was like, what the fuck, dude? Fucked up. Yeah. And then finally, another doctor during that time was to me the the finally like the most intelligent, yeah. at least type of diagnosis he postulated like maybe she has cancer of the stomach or intestines and so they this particular doctor took a sample of her vomit and sent it to the clinical research association but no cancer cells were observed yeah. because that's what they're looking for they're not looking for anything else right they're right just looking for cancer cells but to me i was like at least that there's like someone trying to do something about that's, it <laughs> you know honestly i'm actually pretty impressed i didn't even know that there was the technology to even like understand what cancer cells look like back then so I'm blown away. It is simultaneously the most archaic of times in medicine, but also the time where things are like excelling. Correct. It's very bizarre. Correct. It's very bizarre. The the 19th century in my eyes is kind of like the wild, wild west for like anything, but especially medicine, like anything goes. They're just trying everything out and seeing what works. Yes. Agreed. A hundred percent. She does die in February. Towards her last days, her mother actually lives with them 
and she makes it a point to be like, I will prepare all of her meals. I will do this. She doesn't do that out of like out of like suspicion. Yeah, yeah. She just was like, I want to care for my daughter. Sure. But weirdly, Bessie's health improves when her mother comes through and like prepares all her meals. They don't think anything of that. They're just like, oh, she's getting better. Like it's working. But then at some point, like on the evening of the 12th, George Chapman comes through and is able to sneak a heavier right. dosage. And she dies in the morning of February 13th. And that is that. And here's the cherry on top to George Chapman being a fucking asshole slash just a disgusting, vile person is Bessie. They bury her in her home country of Cheshire. Uh But Chapman, he pleads poverty and can't pay for the funeral. So the brother of Bessie pays for all the funeral expenses. Oh, my God. And George Chapman's like all right cool oh like, my god thanks man this guy is just a utter piece of crap like also yeah, he clearly killed her heavily yes. the day before valentine's day because that mm. stingy piece of shit mm. can't even scrounge up the money to get some flowers yeah. let alone for her grave oh man i know it's absurd i don't know why i react this way but i always like when i was reading all this i was like chuckling i was laughing at how like rotten of a person he yeah. is rotten you know? to his core yeah worse than the grinch all right yes the grinch is a saint <laughs> compared to this guy. he is he is completely <laughs> i'm hoping for a good ending don't tell me i won't tell but you. I'm, I'm hoping I won't tell you. okay <laughs> hang in there okay now for chapter three okay <laughs> the murder of maude oh, no. marsh oh mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. We're almost there. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. We'll get there. The okay. ending is near. All right. So, okay. So that was in February of 1901. In August of 1901. I thought you were going to say in the next hour. <laughs> I know. In the next day. <laughs> so in August of 1901, Chapman places another advertisement for a new barmaid. And he ends up hiring 18-year-old Maud Marsh poor girl but ultimately this is where his undoing begins ends up hiring Maud marsh actually during like her hiring interview her mother comes like accompanies her and it's really sweet because her mother's clearly concerned like you know my daughter's only 18 i think coming of age back then was 21 like that's when you could move to a place and like get a passport or something at least that's what i'm putting together both from george's story and from bessie's story because they were both okay. 21 when they were able to like move mm. so Maud's only 18 her mother comes with her to the hiring interview and her mother questions george and is like okay i understand like you want to have her as your new barmaid and i understand that housing is provided for her because there's like little apartments above the the pub mm. and she asks, is it just you that's living here or nice. are there other people running the space like good on you mother Good on all the mothers out there that look out for their kids like Correct. And George is like, actually, yeah, I do have a family (laughs) renting up there that, you know, they're lodging from me. And, you know, there's nothing to worry about. There will be people here when she starts to work here. All right. That's how the interview goes. And Maude's mom is like, okay, green light. Sounds good. and, And, you know, I'm happy she has this job now. So... In the very brief time where, like, Maud returns back home to gather all her belongings and stuff before moving permanently to the pub, George actually kicks the family out. Oh, shit. And 
so that there would be no other residences in the place. And the moment she starts working there, they're the only two people to to reside in the pub area. Yeah, that's so bizarre. So he's just like, it's bizarre, but like to me, not really. Like he's shown that he's a scummy guy. Yeah, and he's just doing scummy things. Like he's just a scummy person. Yes. yes. So, so he kicks out the family, and uh, with the intent of pursuing Maud when she starts working. So he attempts immediately to charm her and woo her. But it's implied or historians think that she rejected him based on her mother's advice. You know, like she's still young. She's still yeah. like fresh, fresh from the home. Mm-hmm. She understands she doesn't know how the city works. And so she's probably still, you know, under her mother's tutelage and just trying to be respectful of like her mother's wishes. So Chapman, you know, Chapman tries to pursue her, but she declines, declines, declines. He then just decides to pop the question to her and be like, will you marry me to which she says yes <laughs> she says honey, yes honey no because i mean like uh, who knows like who knows if maybe she did like him but was like mm. i'm not gonna be with him until True. he like proposes or on a really sad and triggering note maybe he was just so like pushy that saying yes was like the way to get him get her off the back yeah i don't know but ultimately he pops the question and she says yes, but she says no to sharing a bed with him because they'd only be engaged and she doesn't want to, you know, sleep with him until they're actually officially married. But he can't get married because he's Roman Catholic and he's still married to Lucy from years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he's like, oh, well, this is a dilemma. Like, <laughs> you know, how do I get around this? Right. So there's actually a letter <clears throat> that Maud sent to her mother after she accepts her, his proposal that she's like, George is giving me an ultimatum. He's saying, if I don't like share his bed or like whatever, he'll kick me out. He's like, he'll send me home. And her mother replies back. Like you need to come home. Yeah. But then the next, right. And then the next letter that Maud sends back, she's like, Hey, it's all been resolved. It's okay. Uh-oh. Like it's fine now. Blah, blah, blah. And what George decides to do is he takes Maude to go visit her family so that he can, like, prove himself as a worthy gentleman, blah, 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 and play this right. whole charade, charade, mm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so he goes and they visit the family, and the family is definitely, like, we're not sure about this guy just yeah. because, like, he did threaten to kick you out if you didn't share his bed or his room, you know? Yeah. It- you were just following your values, so is that right? Mm-hmm. But he he's able to win them over by just being charming. And also he writes a draft of a will in that moment. And it's like, hey, here's this will. If I were to die, Maud would inherit all my assets. And so that's his way of winning them over. And it works. That's um, stupid. <laughs> it's so dumb. It's so weird. He just wrote uh, on the back so- of end like, will to Maud. <laughs> I know. There's, there's nothing even if it's like on a napkin. Yeah. Will. <laughs> will. Maud gets money if die. Maud gets shmoney. The end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It works, but uh, I know that there's like st- still some convincing for the mom to be done. But basically, Maud and George, they decide to quote unquote, like get quote unquote married. They put on their best Sunday duds. They go get married. <laughs> 
And when they come home, her family comes to visit and the mom is like, you need to show me the marriage certificate. And Maud goes, oh, George already put it away. Like, let's just go and have our festivities. And that works. Oh, like, Maud's God. mom doesn't question it. She just doesn't question okay. it. She's like, okay, <sighs> man. Okay, Maud's mother... <gasps> I hear you. I am rooting for you. You're asking all the right questions. But where is your follow through? There is no follow through. <sighs> I get it. <laughs> I, I feel your yeah, I feel your frustration at the same time. I'm like, like, is is it because of the how the dynamic is between men and women of the time? You know what I mean? Mm. Like, you just have to take the man's word. Right. Like, is that an expectation? I don't know. So bad. I do feel really hearing that story. I'm like, her mom did her yes. best. Like yes. in my opinion, she did her best, and that's she did more yeah. than most mo- mothers. I would assume back in the day. I would say yeah. so. I would say so. So that happens in October of 1901. Yeah, they they like go to the church, pretend to get married. I actually don't think Maud realizes that they aren't actually oh, no. married. I think Maud wasn't in yeah. on it because she's young and impressionable. But, like, he somehow finagles it to look like they're officially mm. married. Over time, her family does warm up to George okay. because they see how happy Maud is. Maud will email, not email, <laughs> Maud will, Maud will, will uh, mail them and be, like, just sharing how happy she is and how good things are going. And so, like, they start to warm okay. up and they start to, like, accept him more into the family. One weird thing that happens is like the pub is going well. Like there's nothing wrong with the pub. Um, but George has this like brilliant idea to make more money by burning down the pub for like insurance money. But here's what is so bizarre and hilarious about this instance is that he okay, so he burns the pub down and the insurance investigators come through and they're like this is clearly arson <laughs> because all the furniture was moved oh out God. prior to the burning. <laughs> it's like all right next door. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's like so it becomes news for the local area and people kind of gossip. They clearly are yeah, like, of course. George tried to burn his own pub <laughs> but did like a really botched job on oh, it. Like, no. He was really bad at it to a point where he had to send like cease and desist you guys keep talking about my name. Please stop. And police were almost involved in terms of like toning down like the, the community exchanges. Yeah. But that was just like a weird thing that happened. He tried to get insurance money, but ultimately just burned his pub down for no good reason. Oh, my God. Which leads to him buying a larger pub. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> Jesus. So he buys a larger pub right before Christmas time. Mm-mm. Here we are at Christmas again. <laughs> it's probably the biggest pub he's ever owned it's called the the crown which is frequented by medical students from the nearby guys hospital interesting Um, and this was like a weird note in the book that i read but like it was like it even had a billiard room so Mm. george is basically balling like yes yes he burned his old pub but was able to buy this (laughs) big old pub and now it's like a good situation for him wow what about us somehow yeah okay around the same time maud becomes pregnant but Mm-mm. he persuades her to let him give her an abortion oh, by no. syringing her womb <gasps> with a dilute solution of disinfectant phenol, also known as carbolic acid. Oh, what do you fuck. know about that, Harini? Do you like study that stuff in no. pharmacy school? No, okay. I don't even know. Carbo- car- Wait, what'd you say? It's um. So one acid? name for it was 
disinfectant phenol, but uh-huh. in parentheses, it's it's carbolic acid. I don't know what that a is. A diluted, yeah. No. So, so yeah. So he like convinces her, we like you need an abortion. He like, somehow finds a syringe, inserts carbolic acid. That's where his junior surgeon experience comes into play, I guess. And so that's something that happens between them. And it worked. Uh, yes, like they don't they don't have kids. Yeah. That's also a testament to like how he's treated children throughout the whole yes, story. Yes. <laughs> how he's treated children and his partners throughout the whole story so far. Gee, he's just living for himself. Yep. Yep. <laughs> he is living for himself. Yeah. So anyway, she has this abortion. Maud actually decides to hire a new barmaid named Florence for this bigger bar because she's like, I need to be able to do more household chores. Sure instead of tending to the bar the whole time. And mm-hmm. I want to be able to also cook lunch for George and I when we have the free time. Yeah. So she, Maude actually hires this new girl, Florence, but promptly after hiring, George is like all about flirting with oh Florence, putting advances on her, all this stuff. Nothing ever comes of that yeah. except for like one documented kiss, like a, a weird kiss that happened between him and Florence. Maude finds out about it and she threatens to leave George and is like, if this continues, I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. And George is, I mean, I wouldn't say he's indifferent, but he pretty much responds like, okay, if you go, you can stay out forever. Oh like he does not, he does not care for Maud's, you know, safety or interests. He's just like, yeah, okay, you're threatening to leave. See if I care, you oh, know, like man. leave. And she decides to stay. And this is when... She starts falling ill. Oh, no. And this one, it is suspected that because she, like, threatened to leave but was also trying to encroach on his advances on Florence. Yeah. They think that his MO for poisoning her was was because she was interfering with him putting advances on other yeah. women <laughs> and threatening to leave. Freedom of his own life. Yeah. Exactly. So right when she decides to stay, that's when... The illness starts and that's when like the poisoning started happening. It's believed that he started poisoning her in July of that year. So that would be that'd be 1902. The one thing that's unique about Maude compared to George's former marriages with Mary and Bessie Maude's family is incredibly close to her. Like Bessie had some close family Mm. and friends. But Maud's family was super, super doting. And we've seen that from how her, her mother was right. for her, you know. Um, one person that Maud was really close to was her sister Alice, who actually helped at the pub quite often and would stay with them on occasion. And so when Maud started getting sick, Alice persuaded her, like, hey, you need to go to a hospital. Now, with the prior instances of Mary and Bessie, they never went to a hospital. They had doctors come to them. Okay. They had doctors come to their house to check in on them and do uh, house visits. But Alice was like, you need to go into a a facility. And George actually tried to protest, but Alice is like, nah, (laughs) sorry, we're doing this. Not that she suspected anything, but she was just like, I don't care what you think. My sister is vomiting and diarrheaing for who knows what reason. Mm -hmm. She needs to go in. Good. So they actually go to that guy's hospital where the pub is right next to. And yeah, it's called, like guys. Mm-hmm. That's the name of the hospital. Yeah. Guys. Yeah. Guys hospital. Um, and the first time they go in for the visit, whoever sees her the first time around, whatever medical practitioner, they were like, your symptoms aren't severe enough for us to house you here. So I'm sorry. We're going to like reject your hospital visitation. Go home. 
that same night that she goes home, she gets another dosage of poison and she gets even more sick. So they go the next day. And when they see that her symptoms have worsened, they admit her to the hospital for four weeks. What? Four whole weeks. Yeah. Cool. And the first two weeks, there's not a lot of improvement. Mm-hmm. She's just bedridden, probably still showing some signs of vomit and diarrhea. I suspect that she got a very, very heavy yeah. dose of yeah. the poison. And that's why it took two weeks for it to like kind of mm-hmm. remedy. By the third week, she does start to improve rapidly because, you know, no one's administering poison to her or microdosing her anymore. And the observing doctor believes she had peritonitis. Peritonitis. Mm -hmm. Inflammation of the peritoneum. Oh, peritoneum. It's the tissue that lines the Mm -hmm. inner wall of the abdomen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, I get why they would suspect that it's peritonitis. Mm -hmm. So she's feeling better by her fourth week. She returns to the crown and she's fit and healthy for about a month until october 7th when she eats some leftover potatoes that george had left out for lunch and she becomes sick again this is when her decline fully starts Mm -hmm. in october and it says in in the book the next two weeks of her life are very well documented because of how many witnesses were around her to tend Mm -hmm. to her and this is how we also know what george was thinking and how he was doing it. it so i wanted to read directly yeah from the book real quick and i'm gonna do this uh, i'll read a a bit a couple times the book states like the next two weeks of her life are very well documented because of all these witnesses that were around her and it reads from what happened at the crown we learn how he carried out his poisoning and he knew that the poison he was using would enable him to evade detection about this time he actually boasted to one of his customers that he get that he could give a person quote a little bit like that indicating a mm-hmm. pinch between his thumb and forefinger so he's like showing i could give a little bit like that mm-hmm. amount and 50 doctors would not find out end quote so he's pretty much bragging yes. about it right like he's he's getting to a point where he's super arrogant yeah. he's successfully killed two of his former partners and has successfully evaded multiple professional medical opinions yeah. right and so now he's kind of being a little more risky with his behavior, mm-hmm. which is always interesting because I feel like that's something that we do see in these stories. Or, I mean, I'm not a forensic expert, but I do think that in media, true crime stories, for example, there's always kind of like this dialogue of, oh, this killer was doing such a good job of like getting away with things, but then they became arrogant right. and that's what was their end yeah. doing. So that's what I feel like is happening mm-hmm. here with George is that he's getting arrogant. He's had a successful pub run. He's currently poisoning his third partner slash wife. And now he needs to tell people right. about it because he's a narcissist. He wants the credit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He wants the credit. Yeah. So that happens. So there's a witness testimony basically that says like, oh, he didn't mention something about like he could poison someone a little bit and no one would know. So Maud... You know, she she's back at the pub. She ate those gnarly potatoes. She's sick again. <laughs> she's sick again. George actually goes to the doctor, you know, under this pretense, like, oh, I'm a caring husband right. or whatever. Goes to the doctor, asks for medicine, where he oddly confides to, to the doctor, like, oh, you know, Maude and I aren't actually married. Hmm. He says that to the doctor, which is then shared later on. But I think it's just like something that's important to note because I think that helps people 
piece things together when they start investigating the murders. The doctor provides a stomach mixture of chalk, bismuth, and opium and puts Maud on a light diet. Despite all this, she's still severely ill and nothing's staying down. She is just vomiting, vomiting, vomiting. There is another moment that's documented where George opens up a bottle of champagne to like share with Maud. And her other sister at the time, Louisa, is also visiting. Louisa somehow, you know, without George seeing, tastes a little bit of the champagne and notes like, oh, it tastes kind of funny. And then George finds out about that. He immediately like dumps all Uh the champagne. There's a lot of people around and things are not as easy for him to contaminate. Yeah, yeah. That's one instance that was interesting. Mm -hmm. But I think I'll just like fast forward ahead. So basically Maud's health just gets so devastated that the doctor is pretty much like, hey, you can't feed her orally anymore. Like things have to go in anally. Like you have to give her stuff through her butt because it's nothing staying down in her stomach. Yeah. And George weirdly asks some of his regular customers to see if they'd be willing to do that to like care for her that way. What? And all of them are like, no, <laughs> like we will look after her, but we're not going to do like the anal feeding. Yeah. So he, he almost kind of uses that to his advantage knowing that no one wants to like, do that. Mm. So it gives him access to just being around her 24 seven. Interesting. Yeah. Her father does find this a little suspicious. He observes that George not once ever like leaves Maud's sight. Like mm. he's always around Maud. Okay. So because of that suspicion, her father calls his own doctor, like oh, his own good. private, you know, yeah. doctor, his personal opinion. Yeah. So the father's doctor plus the doctor that's just been on hand in mm-hmm, general, mm-hmm. they both kind of feel like, you know, oh, what if it's food poisoning? So yeah. they're like it could be something that's something that there's a contamination or something that's happening, but they still can't figure it out. The doctors finally have that conversation with Maud's parents saying, hey, it's super likely your daughter's going to die. She's just not getting through whatever this is. I think you should consider writing up a death certificate. And this is when the doctor who George told like, hey, we're not actually married. He actually discloses that information. He's like, you should probably consider writing a death certificate, but I need you to know George and Maude aren't actually oh, legally married. Fuck. And that's where the family starts to be like, what? Oh, like, no. that seems interesting. What is that about? Yeah. So towards the end of Maude's days, her mother tends to her. Mm-hmm. And she notices that every time Maud drinks a little bit of brandy, she throws up. And her mother knows, like, that's the brandy that George put by her bedside. Yes. So the mom decides to taste a little bit of the brandy and immediately has a vomitous reaction. Wow. And she's like, okay, it's something about the brandy. Something's up. So she even asks, like, one of the regular customers who just kind of has been helping with the sickness, Mm -hmm. like, try this. And that customer is like, oh, it tastes weird and it tastes strong and my mouth feels hot. In that same day, Maud must have gotten a super heavy dosage or something. And she ends up passing in that day. Like her, no. It's described as her symptoms were like her arm turned a deep color red. Her lips are gray. What's that one term when you're... Cyanosis. Like cyanosis. And she had severe uterine discharge. Weird. And so, yeah, very weird how it like in- impacts the reproductive health. Yeah. So she ends up dying. 
But because of the information that the doctor shared in terms of, oh, they're not actually mm, married, mm-hmm. and also noting that whenever she drinks the brandy that George gives her, she throws up, the mom had the foresight to be like, okay, if Maud dies, she shared this in secret with the doctors. She was like, okay, if Maud dies, we're not burying her. You need to do a private postmortem exam yes. on her. And the doctor agrees. So George, not knowing this, sees that, oh, Maude is dead. He puts on a show of crying. (laughs) But then ultimately ends up opening the pub like a few hours later. How cringe. Okay. Sure. you know, he's thinking, okay, like, she's dead. We'll write a death certificate. She'll be buried. But the doctor is like, oh, no, no. I'm going to take her in for a postmortem. Oh, my God. Now he's uh, sweating bullets. Autopsy. Yes. All right, so we're almost there. Oh, shit. Okay, okay, okay. So the doctor takes in her body, and he takes samples of her stomach and sends them to the Clinical Research Association, where other professionals can look at them. Yeah. The issue is that the doctor who took those samples and sent them to the association, he specifically was like, I need you to look for arsenic. He suspected that there was poisoning. He's like, I need you to look for arsenic. So... The people analyzing it at the Clinical Research Association weirdly actually do find a small trace amount of arsenic, which is enough for them to call the police. Okay. At the same time, they actually did find large, large quantities of antimony in her stomach sample. Yeah. But they didn't report it because they were looking specifically for arsenic. Yeah. But that being said, it still all worked out right. because if for some reason there was this weird small trace of arsenic in her stomach lining. And that leads to George Chapman's arrest. Wow. Obviously, after a while, during the investigation, they recognize it is the antimony. Mm-hmm. I know this has been a long story, but <laughs> no, yeah, I'm going to actually bring us back to both Mary and Bessie. Sure. And I'm going to read straight from the book about how their bodies were exhumed and what the the composition of their bodies were when they were exhumed. So during the investigation, the coroner exhumes both Mary and Bessie. I think the most fascinating description of their dead bodies is, is Mary's story. Each one has a very fascinating story, but I think her postmortem story is like tragic in the description of like them exhuming mm-hmm. her. So On the day that Mary died, back in 1897, Mary's body was buried 18 feet deep in the ground. And the reason for that is so that if more people passed away, the cemetery would have space to put bodies on top of her. Oh my gosh, yeah, they used to do that shit, I forgot. Yeah, so she was buried 18 feet deep in the ground. It says, for five years, Mary's body lay undisturbed during which time seven other coffins were interred on top no. of it. Yeah. When the grave was opened in December of 1902, which is when George is pretty much arrested and going through trial, yes. the stench from these was quite appalling. But on opening Mary's coffin, those present were astounded to find that her body was virtually unchanged. The nurse, Mrs. Waymark, who had tended to Mary in her ending days, was able to identify her, and it was noted that her eyes were still intact. An autopsy revealed that the spleen, kidneys, bladder, heart, and lungs were all normal, and there was no sign of consumption. 
because they believed that she was dying of like some sort of tuberculosis yeah, or whatever, yeah, yeah. right? The cause of death was acute gastroenteritis, meaning she was vomiting so much that her insides were just fucked up. Like her esophageal GI yeah, tract was messed yeah. up, had ulcers. Yeah, so acute gastroenteritis caused by a chemical agent, and that agent was antimony. Mm-hmm. Nor could this have percolated from the surrounding soil, which was tested for its antimony content, and none was That's found. Smart. Yeah. Yep. So this is where I go back to this. They're really intelligent so with the intelligent. investigation. But the <laughs> doctors, <laughs> after so many deaths, you know, could not figure out what it was. Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird. It's like a weird dichotomy. Right, totally. The yeah. forensics of it all is just is inc- very, advanced. very advanced, very intelligent. Yeah. I love the forensic toxicology of this story. It's amazing. Agreed. Mary's body was saturated with antimony, and this was chiefly responsible for the remarkable state of preservation of her corpse mm. because of the severe dehydration it caused. Because when you're poisoned with this antimony tartrate, you're dehydrated because you're vomiting and you know, yeah. pooping and you just wither into like a dried thing. The organs analyzed yielded antimony as follows. Kidneys had four milligrams of antimony. Stomach, two milligrams. Bowels, 27 milligrams. Liver, 57 milligrams. This last amount revealed that she had been given a large dose not long before she died. Mm -hmm. Altogether, Mm -hmm. there was 90 milligrams of antimony found in the parts analyzed. Okay. So that's Mary's report on her Mm -hmm. exhuming. And then, Mm -hmm. going to Bessie's to compare, it reads, The body of Bessie lay undisturbed for 21 months. That is not a long time between murders. (laughs) Undisturbed for 21 months, long enough for it to decompose. So she was in a a shallower grave. Her body was decomposing. Mm -hmm. However, Mm -hmm. when it was lifted from its grave on the 22nd of November, 1902, it was observed to exude no odor of putrefaction, And with the exception of a layer of mold, it was in a remarkable state of preservation. The corpse was dissected and all the major organs found to be free of disease, with the exception of the stomach, which showed the expected signs of gastritis. Mm -hmm. The inner surface of the bowel was found to be coated with yellow antimony sulfide, indicating that the fatal dose may well have been introduced into the body in the form of an enema. This compound oh, would no. be produced. Yeah, this compound would be produced from antimony reacting with the hydrogen sulfide that forms as protein decomposes. The chemical analysis showed the stomach to contain eight milligrams of antimony, the kidneys twenty milligrams, the liver one hundred and seven milligrams, and the intestines five hundred and forty-eight oh. milligrams. This last amount being the largest ever recorded in the victim of antimony poisoning. The total amount of antimony was 693 milligrams. Oh, my lanta. The soil around the grave was tested, but no antimony was found. Uh The evidence all pointed to a massive single dose given to Bessie on the Tuesday evening before she died. No. Yeah. Poor baby girl. I know. Poor (sighs) Bessie. Bessie. And so from there, they didn't really have to go further into looking at Maud's body. Like, everything was just yeah. lining up. During the time before his trial, like when he recognized, oh, fuck, like I'm in trouble. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. George did try to eliminate all evidence. Um, he, he took all the cloths and sheets that Maud had used or vomited on and he burned it all. He took his bottle of poison of antimony potassium tartrate and burned it. The one thing that 
he, you know, fortunately you know, overlooked or didn't burn was the label from his original poisoning bottle that he bought five years ago oh, yeah, back yeah. in Hastings. And that's what the inspectors found. And it was just it was just enough for him to be indicted. <laughs> what is the word? Convicted. Brought in. Convicted. Yeah. yeah. Was he because was he eventually killed or just jailed? OK, indicted is the right word. But OK, so he goes through a trial which is super quick. Just like the rest of his life. <laughs> yes. Everything is so fast, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, once he's indicted, meaning he's charged with the crime, he's not convicted yes. yet. He goes on trial. The jury literally takes 10 minutes to deliberate and they all find him guilty. And this is what it says in the book. It goes, in his summing up, the judge, Mr. Justice Grantham, took a strong anti-Chapman line. So he's, you know, vehemently against George mm. the whole time, but also rebuked the medical men involved in treating Chapman's victims for their inability to diagnose that their patients were being poisoned. So yes. I read that and I was like, snap, snaps. Like, yes, snap, snaps. Saying that it's psychosomatic and hysteria. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. It took the jury only 10 minutes to find Chapman guilty and he was executed on April 7th of Ooh. 1903. Wow. Literally, you know, a few months after Maud's death. Wow. Uh, because she died in she died close to like November of 1902 you know mm. it took mm -hmm. five months or whatever for him to be charged and executed Amazing. he never admitted he never admitted he was Severin Klazowski even huh. at the end of his life and although his real wife Lucy who's still alive and well <laughs> out there at the time she called repeatedly at Wandsworth prison to see him he always refused to see her interesting how his story ends wow yeah. my goodness that is the wildest story i've never heard of i know it is bizarre how did you find the story <laughs> you know i actually google searched as like victorian era poisonings <laughs> yeah. i was just feeling like you know i was in that classical masterpiece theater yes, mood, yes. and i was like what's out there what's out there and i came across you know those those Quora, mm -hmm. Q-U-O-R-A, mm -hmm. like ask and answer boards? And some of them listed famous women from this oh. period who were like known as poisoners. And then one person put, oh, don't forget George Chapman. Like he was a serial poisoner. Wow. And also conflated with Jack the Ripper. And so I was like, that seems interesting. Super interesting. So I learned. Yeah, I clicked on that and took me on this wild <laughs> ride of a person that was just horrible. Wow. Horrible being. You know um, what? Yes, this is not going to come out during this time, but we are recording just days before Mother's Day. And I'm like, this is so perfect because Maude's mother is the MVP. Mother knows yeah, best. She really was. Wow. She really was. To have that foresight mm -hmm. to be like, hey, don't bury her. Right. Something sus. Right. Real sus in these hills. <laughs> Let's get an autopsy. I'm like, damn, woman. Okay. Like, that's... Way to step like, up. What, like, way <laughs> to have such presence of mind. The father, I don't know where he was. I'm sure he was part of it. But wow. She, yeah. Presence of mind to, like, f figure all of that out. Good on her. Good on her. I think, I mean, ultimately, there's there are a lot of variables that ended up leading to his mm, arrest. Yeah. Was, George was getting cocky. The mom was very observant yeah even the father i would give some credit yes. to the father like he noted george just seems kind of like a weird totally. guy while my while my daughter is sick 
all those things were adding up. So. Honestly, it yeah. would have been a lot di- more difficult for them to catch on that he's being suspicious if he hadn't let on that they aren't married. Like, I genuinely wonder, would they even yeah. understand any of this was going on behind the scenes if he didn't let out that small little detail? Right. And in a way, that's a really good question because part of me is like, okay, my brain goes, because we, we also live in a contemporary time. So those values don't apply as heavily on my mind. But when I read that, I was like, why would she be be suspicious of him just because they're not married? But in a way, I'm like, I can see it. Maybe she wasn't suspicious of him of poisoning his daughter, but it was enough to take away her trust Correct. in him and to be willing to see him as someone who is capable of deception hurting yeah deception or hurting the family yes so i do agree with you like that little moment like why did he share that with the doctor interesting choice interesting choice that was definitely like the kickstart of his demise yeah loved it i loved that story how how (laughs) like fascinating and megan texted me before that this is gonna be a roller coaster it was it was a roller coaster it delivered Glad y'all strapped in for that. Glad to took you on that ride. We are now slowly begin docking into the yes, station. Yes, we're coasting back. Yeah. Coasting back. We're going to finish out with a real quick toxicology poison discussion of antimony potassium tartrate and a little bit of antimony. All right. So antimony potassium tartrate, also referred to as tartar emetic Mm -hmm. an emetic is just a term that is used for any substance that causes vomiting it is a clear to light beige crystal like a crystal form where if you put it into a liquid it dissolves really easily and i've seen photos of it to me the only way like the way i could describe it is it almost looks like you know those those raw yes like that's exactly what i thought of yeah cane sugar that's yeah, cane sugar. It kind of looks like that, except a little okay. lighter. It's like thick crystals. Yeah, yeah. It is odorless, but it does have a taste. And if there's enough of it, you can definitely taste it. It's bitter yeah. and it makes your mouth feel hot, just like that one witness mm-hmm. said earlier on. Where is it mostly used? Because it is used currently, mm-hmm. contemporarily. It's used a lot in textile and leather processing huh. and is and as an insecticide. It's also used the, specifically the tartar emetic. Mm-hmm stuff that makes you vomit it was used in medicine okay. um for a long time like in history since the middle ages wow antimony itself was always kind of used as a vomit inducer mm-hmm. but i think around the uh, around 1913 they started to phase that out because other compounds that were more sustainable mm-hmm. and less harmful to the mm-hmm. body were being introduced to the sciences mm-hmm. It had a resurgence in 1918 when people realized they could use it to combat parasites. So people would use the tartar emetic in agriculture and in humans to combat any sort of parasitic infection. But then they would inject it. And I think there were like bad side effects. Uh. So come the 1970s, there was the introduction of praziquental, known as Riltride, which is like the main medication that is used to combat parasites oh i don't i've never heard of that so okay okay off the top of your head do you know of like certain parasite medications that you have studied the only one i know of shit now is escaping me Mm -hmm. is the one that you give for ticks and fleas for dogs 
Uh, which starts see, with an I, but now I can't freaking remember. Oh, that's gotcha. the only one. This is for heartworms yeah, yeah, yeah. and heartworm the prevention. stuff that's yeah. like intermuscular. Correct, correct. You know what I mean? Stuff that livestock get a lot. We don't use tartar emetics that in medicine anymore. I think even in the agricultural industry, it's not used as much. But I there are some instances where when you want to study like the diet of a certain animal, you'll give like a small amount so that they can regurgitate and then you can like look at what, you know, their microbiome is and mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a brief history of it used in medicine. Right. I do want to go real quick into antimony because that's the metalloid that is in this mm-hmm. compound. Antimony itself is non-toxic. Like it cannot cause harm at least that's my understanding that's what i've read antimony itself is non-toxic it has to be in this compound state to be toxic antimony itself is naturally occurring and we actually have antimony in our body at this moment it's non-harmful to us so for example the the drug i was thinking of is ivermectin for heartworm that's what they use okay yeah so antimony is naturally present in our bodies It's in our brain, it's in our hair, liver, kidneys. Our average daily intake of antimony in our food and drink is around Hmm. 0.5 milligrams. And it comes mainly from the traces of antimony found in vegetables. So antimony itself, non-toxic. Antimony potassium tartrate, toxic. There's also a gaseous version of some antimonic Mm -hmm. compound, which is even more toxic because it's inhalated. There's three breakdowns of like toxicity for for antimony compounds it's inhalation oral or topical and inhalation is always going to have the most impact on all aspects of your body whereas orally it's mostly just going to impact your gi tract and topical is very survivable you get what's called antimony spots which happen on your Mm -hmm. near your sebaceous glands but that being said how would you be exposed to like toxic antimony? Usually it's mm. in an occupational setting and that would include anybody who's in the industry of yeah. metal mining environmentally. The antimony, like gaseous antimony has increased wow. in our atmosphere over the years because of right. burning of copper and iron ore. When those elements are burned or the ore is burned, antimony is actually an impurity mm-hmm. in those those metals wow. and that's what gets released into the atmosphere so it is an in- it was interesting learning that it's that's become so something crazy. that's more present around us you know what i mean right not right. in like a way that is scary <laughs> but kind of is because it's, it's part of our atmosphere like, now like kind of permanently that's, um, that's that's wild okay yeah so metal mining's one area where you can be exposed to it more mm-hmm. specifically like the gaseous version anything that has to do with smelting anything that has to do with mm-hmm. refining activities Anything that has to do with soda yeah. glass. I'm not sure what okay. that was, but like glass work or something. Mm. Fire retardants have a presence of toxic antimony. Mm-hmm. Any type of incineration of waste can offset toxic antimony. Fuel combustion huh. and shooting activities. Right. So I imagine like when you shoot a gun, yeah. whatever combustion happens in that moment, oh, there's okay. elements of that there too. Health effects of antimony or exposure to antimony include... Gastrointestinal symptoms, mm-hmm. as we've discre- discussed, like nausea, vomiting, anorexia, because right. of all the vomiting, or you just don't want to eat anything because you know you're just going to vomit it back up. Abdominal pain and stomach ulcers. Transient irritating skin rashes called antimony spots arise when workers are exposed to antimony in hot weather. 
Furthermore, antimony has been related to respiratory diseases like pneumonosoniosis, um, bronchitis, and respiratory irritation and chronic cough. Reproductive effects Mm. can happen, as we observed in like, was it Mary? Bessie Bessie and and Maud's uterus having like right. a weird discharge and, and blood, menstrual abnormalities and spontaneous abortions can occur. And then there isn't current research language going around that they believe that the gaseous version of antimony is a carcinogen, which I believe yeah. that because like it's causing course, all these other yeah. problems. So they do think it's cancer, cancer it. inducing. How does it work? Like what does it look like when it goes through the body? It first accumulates in the liver, and then it's transferred to other parts of the body where it may interfere with metabolic processes, much like how arsenic is. In fact, like that's the other poison that it's most closely aligned with or compared to is arsenic. What's different about this antimony, potassium, tartar, and arsenic is that it's pushed through the body pretty quickly. Like It's moved through the liver and then through the kidneys very fast. Antimony, potassium, tartar, or tartrate, it stays in the body for a long time. Like, that's the only difference. And so the kidneys are very, very slow at pushing it out. Because, in fact, one of the things that it can do is actually inhibit urination. Mm. So Mm. that's why it just takes a while to exit the body. The current antidotes for antimony, (laughs) potassium tartrate, or any sort of toxic antimony poisoning are chelating drugs. That's what we would use now. In the Victorian era, what they would do is they would pump the stomach of all its contents and then wash the stomach out multiple times and then eventually try to get the patient to drink a lot of fluids. They say that there's a good prognosis if a person survives 48 hours after poisoning. All that being said, in our lives Mm -hmm. now, it's always going to be a good prognosis because I think we recognize the occupational Mm -hmm. hazard for it, especially the inhalation type of um, toxicity. And so those safety measures are very present. And so if someone is like, oh, I know I was exposed to this, they're going to be in the hospital right right away. One thing that is ironic about specifically antimony potassium tartrate is that in a way it's an antidote for itself because if you ingest it, that's true. But if you ingest too much of it, then that's what's going right. to hurt you, especially if it's retained within the body and you don't vomit it. And I left this out earlier. I should have I should have mentioned this earlier, but it's noted that toxicity is always going to be variable across body weight and size and just different, different variables. But it has been documented that as small as 120 milligrams can cause a fatality. But obviously you don't want like what Bessie had, which oh was God. 600 plus right. milligrams of antimony to a point where her body was like preserved. Dude, that is wild. <laughs> you know? Wow. That's that. I Okay, I've never actually don't know anything about antimony. The mm-hmm. extent of my knowledge is just hearing that mm-hmm. word antimony and yeah. that's it. Yeah. Like I didn't know anything else about it. So I was very excited when you brought this up. So yeah. this is has been a complete education for me. And a very thorough one at that, too. Thank you, Megan. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, When I first came across this, in my notes, I originally was incorrectly being like, oh, this is this would fall under like our metal Mm, poisoning mm -hmm. category. But it's not technically a metal. It's a metalloid. So I was like, this does make it semi-distinct from other things that we've talked about. That is is very interesting. interesting. And a very unique story that I like. Mm -hmm. You don't really hear about. And you've got Jack the Ripper involved. Like it's it's got all the talking points. (laughs) 
all the ele- exactly all the loved it okay very awesome we will just head straight into our antidotes of the week so my antidote is i am an aunt i was able to see my little niece and she is just precious i have never held a little baby before because i'm the youngest in my family megan i don't know if you can attest to the same but yeah, this is my first time holding any kind of little little newborn baby. And I just absolutely fell in love with her. She is so precious. So that is my antidote, our healthy new baby girl of the family. May I ask yes, her name? Yes. I yes, know yes, you yes. already told me, but you know. Her name is Aishwarya, short for Aishu. Or sorry, her short name is Aishu. Yeah, she's she's a, she's a little angel. So very happy. I think I finally saw your brother post her on Instagram. And I was like, oh, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So cute. Oh, through our that shit is poison Instagram account. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations. Yeah. I'm so happy for you. for you, for your brother, for your sister-in-law. So exciting. Yes. I assure you. Adorable. Yes. I don't think I've held a brand new baby before. Yeah. I might have been offered to in the past, but offered. it makes me nervous. I'm not like... Same. You know, I'm not like scared of babies or... They don't make me nervous in a way of like, oh, I don't know how to handle children. It's not that. It's more like the fragility. Sure. The fragility yes. of a newborn Correct. baby is so severe to me that I'm like, I don't want to be responsible for anything. <laughs> me too. That will me happen. too. That's exactly what I said. Um, That's exactly what I said. I was like, uh, I don't want to hurt her. Yeah. And like my sister was like, you can't hurt her. I promise. Like, it'll be fine. Yeah. And it was okay. fine. But I, I had to get over that initial barrier fear. Like, oh, my God, what if I drop right? her? She could, she'll just break in my hands. Totally, totally. <laughs> I think about, for example, my cats. I handle my cats any which way. When they were kittens, I handled them any which way. And I knew like their level of fragility. But it's just su- it's yeah. a different thing when it's a human life. You 100%. know, I'm just like, 100%. not that I would be negligent of the way I handle my animals. <laughs> but like, there's right. especially if it's not your own, too. Mm, That's where mm-hmm, I get a little mm-hmm. anxious. But I'm Same. glad it was like a good moment and experience for you. It was. Maybe I'll it maybe was. I'll get there one day. Someone yeah. I'll be like, does someone want to hand me a new baby? I just want to see what it's like. <laughs> I highly recommend. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So my antidote for today was it's very simple. I had an extremely productive work day. I just feel like I'm really doing a good job of being productive and staying motivated and being, being on my grind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had this project at work that it's due next week, actually, like a, mm-hmm. whatever I have to submit, it's due next week, but I have to go through multiple departments. Like I have to go up this ladder right. to get all yeah. these things signed off on and reviewed. And I actually sure. was quite anxious that those things wouldn't happen in time for when I have to turn this thing in. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, what happened today, like I sent, I sent out, you know, my materials with the expectation of like, okay, I'm not going to get the signature I need until late next week because they say it's a two-week processing yeah. period. I got the signature form back in the same day. And I was like, holy wow. shit. Like, yes. that just made me... Real talk, y'all, Poison Pals? Yeah, yeah. This whole thing has been kind of stressing me out since the beginning of last week. So it's been like oh two weeks gosh, of okay. like kind of preparing myself for I might be really close to this deadline. Like, it's going to be a tight, right. tight, whatever, fit or something. yeah. But I got the signature I needed well in advance, got it today. And now I was just like 
so relaxed. Yes. Like no stress. That's awesome. So that's my antidote. Yeah. Just like work was good. Work. I had a good work day. That's all. Love everything. All your ducks just came yeah. in a row and it was just perfect. I love when that happens. Yeah. <sighs> good on you, Megan. <laughs> For also you. just like thinking ahead of time and getting shit done. Yeah. Yeah. All right, me and I think that's All it. Right. Uh, thanks for listening, mm. Poison mm. Pals. Once again, this was a great episode, Megan. Again, thanks for a great story. Yeah. If you guys are interested or liked this episode, please give us some love, show us some love, subscribe, rate, review. Yeah. And follow us on all of the things, all the social media. We always put them in all our links. That shit is poison on Instagram is where we should post all the goodies. You can also follow us on Twitter at that shit is poison. That shit is poison on TikTok, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> if you dare. We have all the platforms uh, to all our audience. Like if if you're not a TikToker, exactly. we got Twitter. If you're not a Twitter, we got Instagram. We got it all. Right. Like technically we do have discord too but we don't do anything no, on that i feel like megan's more savvy on that but we don't have anything official on there unless yeah. you guys want us to but and yeah. if you have any comments or you know stories you want us to do that shit is poison at gmail.com mm-hmm. always open but that's it so megan please take us on out all right y'all <laughs> don't risk it for that 19th century antimony biscuit mm None of that, because uh-uh. you're going to vomit that. it up. <laughs> <laughs> Into the next century. <laughs> oh, right. gosh. Okay, thanks, guys. See you next week. Peace. Bye. Bye.